Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Listeners, if you enjoy this podcast, I promise you will love my new audiobook for Moms Don't Have Time to a Quarantine Anthology. It's not about the quarantine, but a lot of the essays were written during that time about other things that moms don't have time to do or other busy people, things like reading, eating, working out, breathing, having sex, and 60 best-selling and notable authors wrote essays. All those authors have been on this very podcast. So if you like to listen to my conversations, if you want to get to know these authors better, I read the audiobook myself. Check it out on Audible, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. Again, Audible, audiobook. Go listen to it. It's like 60 mini podcasts. I hope you enjoy. Alex Michaelidis is the author of The Maidens, which is already a bestseller and hit the list the week that the book came out. Alex was born and raised in Cyprus. He has an MA in English Literature from Trinity College, Cambridge University, and an MA in Screenwriting from the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. The Silent Patient was his first novel and spent over a year on the New York Times bestseller list and sold in a record-breaking 49 countries. He currently lives in London. Also, for Alex Michaelidis' episode, I'm trying something new, and I am including a little bit of the audio from his book, so you can get a tiny sample of it. Let me know what you think. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Maidens. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. You are just, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but you are such a good writer. I mean, the quality of prose and how, like, I just, it's so immersive. You just like can't stop reading. And it's a mix, not just of like what's going on and sort of mystery of it, but also the emotion behind it is like so raw and relatable. So I don't, I just loved it. It's like you're, you're, I mean, that's probably why you're number one bestselling author, but anyway. <laughs> that is so amazing to hear. Thank you very much. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm apprehensive, of course I am, because it's my second novel and I put my kind of heart and soul into the whole book. And so I really hope it works, but I'm, I'm nervous. I won't lie. You know, oh. So it's great to hear feedback like that. Thank you. Oh my gosh. No, it's so good. Can you tell listeners what The Maidens is about? 
Sure. The Maidens is, you know, it's picking up on the same themes that um, preoccupied me with the silent patient and just preoccupied me generally, which is Greek psychology, Greek, sorry, Greek mythology, psychology and murder. And it's about a mysterious and charismatic Greek tragedy professor at Cambridge University who is uh, suspected of murdering his students, who are all members of a secret society known as the Maidens. And our heroine is a Greek group psychotherapist who becomes obsessed with proving the professor's guilt, even at the risk of endangering her own life. Wow. Well, you have that ni- nicely tied up. I love it. Uh, it's right, uh, well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, it's a big part for me. I feel like it, it, until you can actually describe your own novel in a few sentences, it's not clear enough in your own head. That's a big belief of mine. And so I work very hard when I'm writing the novel to be able to refine it to a place where I feel like I can communicate it to somebody quickly. You know? That's true. Yeah. As soon as I'm like, well, it's about this, but then this, and then, <laughs> yeah. then you've like already lost the person, right? Yeah. Yeah. You probably have to do that all as well, like synthesize in just a few sentences, all the books that you I have read. to do it all the time. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, whenever yeah. I recommend a book, it has to be like, you know, when it becomes like, there's like another huge paragraph to get to the plot. I'm like, come on. Yeah. It's when you know there's a problem when you're writing it. Yeah. It's true. It's funny. Well, so your book really talks about Sebastian and Mariana, this couple, it starts out that way. And when Mariana has to figure out what's happened with Zoe, who's on campus and finds out about this crime and is it her friend and all of this like intrigue. And mm-hmm. before that, you go into what it's like to have to go back to a place that you went so many times with someone you loved, which is something that happens to everybody. And yet- mm-hmm doesn't get talked about all that often. And here was sort of brought to life in such detail. So there's one paragraph I just wanted to read quickly. Well, even just about death, but you said, death was no stranger to Mariana. It had been her traveling companion since she was a child, keeping close behind her, hovering just over her shoulder. She sometimes felt she had been cursed as if by some malevolent goddess in a Greek myth to lose everyone she ever loved. It was cancer that killed her mother when she was just a baby. And then years later, a horrific car crash. And I won't give any more away. But just the fact that she feels so chased by grief. Mm. And then what Mm. does she do? Sort of like on the train and facing ghosts everywhere she goes. Tell me a little bit about that and like where this is coming from. Well, I'm really glad you highlighted that passage because that passage is one of the few bits in the book that came to me just in one go, as I was just going for a walk, I just heard that in my head and I just grabbed my phone and quickly wrote it down and it didn't change. And so it was definitely something that was kind of in my mind and in my subconscious. It's a story about a woman who's haunted, you know, haunted by the ghosts of her past. And the very first image that came to me of the book was, you know, in this dreamlike way that these things come into your head, was an image of a woman in a house going through her dead husband's possessions and unable to throw anything away. And then that ended up being the first chapter of the novel. And then everything kind of grew from there. And I went into themes of, you know, of loss, of love and, and loss, you know, with the Greek myth of Persephone, but also the poetry of Tennyson. I tried to make it very romantic and thematic. The way I kind of really got into it personally was I went back to Cambridge. So I was a student at Cambridge and I left there about 20 years ago. And in order to write this novel set there, I felt I had to kind of revisit it in the way that Mariana revisits it. And so while I was writing it, I would go and stay there for a period of, you know, four or five days at a time in a hotel. And then I'd walk my way through the novel and I would kind of be where she was meant to be at the time that she was meant to be there. Like if she's meant to be in the pub at like 9 p.m. on a Thursday, I would go at 9 p.m. on a Thursday and I'd take a little notebook and I'd write down what I was seeing and smelling and, you know. And I thought that it would be a kind of atmospheric note-taking. But the weirdest thing happened in that I started to, in the way that she's haunted by her ghosts, I started to be haunted by my own ghosts, you know, like lovers I'd lost or friends I'd lost or even myself at 18. 
And the more days that I spent on my own going around this, this city where I'd been so happy 20 years earlier, the sadder and sadder I got. Oh, and, no. um, and so, but I was able to channel all of this into her character. And it was like a real exciting revelation for me in terms of writing the book. And I was, you know, I think that's the only way that I can write is to try and become the person that I'm, I'm writing about. So it worked out well in the end, I think. Wow. Okay. So maybe the trick is just to go where your heart broke and just mine that yeah, yeah. space and place. And then throw it into somebody else's. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I've always been really influenced or inspired by sadness and romantic sadness. And I guess that explains why there's so many like heartbroken love songs in the world, right? We can all, we've all lost somebody that we love. And so we can all relate to that, I think. Can you share somebody that you've lost or somebody? Many people. And not just for a romantic love, but, you know, like, you know, relatives, my grandparents, people like friends of mine have died, you know, over the years. You just... And they stay with you in your heart, you know. And so I think this book was, uh, one journalist asked me if it was a kind of exorcism, this book, which is an interesting choice of word. It wasn't. It was more like a kind of therapeutic catharsis, Mm -hmm. I feel, because at the end of it, I felt that I'd let go of a lot of stuff that I've been carrying around for a long time. Wow. So, yeah. So aside from your sort of immersive research, what other tricks, (laughs) if you will, like, tell me more about the process of how you put this together. Did all, did you do all of it on, just tell me the whole process because it sounds interesting. Well, it's like, you know, the way the kind of books I write, I think it's all about the architecture. Uh, You know, I think it's about the crime investigation and solution. And I think that you can hold a lot within that structure, but that structure gives you like the the basis that's going to be, it's going to hold your house. And I think of it as like a magic trick as well, that your game that you're playing with the reader and the reader willingly enters into this relationship with you when you write a mystery or a thriller, where they're like, okay, I'm going to go on this journey with you and I expect you to be one step ahead of me. But the, the reader often tries to get one step ahead of you. And so it's like a little dance that you have. And the way I think of it is that there are two stories. There's the apparent story, which is the detective story. And that's the story we're reading. And then there is the secret story that I'm telling at the same time, which is the story of the murderer. And then they come together at the end of the book. And so there's all these kinds of different things to bear in mind when you're plotting a mystery like this. And the way that I do it is a technique called mind mapping, which I've used for years and it really works for me. You know, I take together many, many sheets of paper on the floor. And then I just start in the middle with one point, like Mariana going through Sebastian's things. And then it makes me think of something else and I draw an arrow and then I write that. And then I draw another arrow to something else that pops into my head and several arrows all over the place. And and the reason it works, I think, is because whenever I try to write in a linear list of a plot, it, I get stuck. But because my mind can't hold this in my head because I've got arrows going down the side of the page and writing this upside down and stuff like that, somehow it frees up my imagination. And then you end up with this vast cobweb in front of you, which tells you the whole story. And then the tricky thing is to sit down with a laptop and try and put it into some kind of order. And that takes, that's, that's a bit difficult, but it's a really fun creative process. Yeah. Do you have pictures of your... Special? I do. It's on Instagram, actually. Oh, it yeah. is. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I'm so sorry. You know, I was actually thinking to myself, like, oh, I should have... Well, anyway, I'm sorry for not seeing it ahead of time. <laughs> I'll dig and find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a way back, I think, because I, I did that fairly on in the beginning of the process. So, okay. Yeah. So, okay. Where did this love of writing and sort of, art, you know, building mysteries, essentially, where did this all come from? Like, when did you start liking to write? How did you know or you wanted to do this? When did you know you wanted to do this? Like, what was it like when you were a kid? All that. 
I think, you know, it's funny because um, before we started filming, the first thing I said to you was, wow, look at your bookcase. I grew up, my mom, like Mariana's mom in the novel, my mom's English and she is a, is a real bookworm and she brought all of these books to our house. And so I grew up in, in a house that was just full of books and every, in every room in the living room just had shelves covering all the walls that were full of books and not just like any books, but she had really good taste. And so it was great books. And pretty much all of the writers that, you know, influenced me, made me want to be a writer, like Margaret Atwood or Charles Dickens or Henry James or whoever, were like taken off the shelf by my mom and like presented to me when I was a teenager or whatever. And so that's one side of it. But the other side was that the the books that actually made me want to become a, a writer really were the Agatha Christie thrillers, classic thrillers that my sister had in her room. I think my mom was too much of a snob to read those books. And so, and I snuck into her at my sister's room when I was like 13. And I just liked the covers of these crazy looking books. And I took one down and then I spent one summer on the beach in Cyprus, just devouring her books, like one after the other, after the other, after the other. And, and I knew then and there, and I was like, you know, I must have been 13 years, 12 or 13. I remember saying to myself, oh, one day I want to write a detective story like this that I could, you know, read on the beach. And that was always been my motivation. And that's the reason I wrote The Silent Patient. When I got the silent patient in a decent enough shape, I printed it out and I took it to the beach and I sat with some rosé bottles of wine in Spain and I read it. And I was really happy, like really properly. It's the first time I'd read something that made me really happy that I'd written. And so when I got a little bit lost with the maidens initially and felt a, bit, a lot of pressure after the unexpected success of the first book, I thought, OK, I have to like bring it right back down to that kid on the beach again and just try and write something for myself to, re- to read. And for whatever, that really works for me, you know, as a brief. It's funny. I guess because you were you were kind of removing all the other voices in your head, you know, just. Uh, but I mean, that's really all it comes down to. You have to write something you want to write and you want to read. Otherwise, like, why are we doing this? Like, no. if you try to play to the market or make sure you're pleasing this person or that person, or, you know. I think that was why I found um, screenwriting so heartbreaking and difficult. That's a really good point you're making because every every idea I had, like I was working with a director, for example, would be second guessed by him, and he'd be like, "Oh, people won't get that joke." You know, and it really, it's interesting because I don't know if you've ever seen Fleabag uh, by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but when I first saw that on television, I just sat up and I was like, wow, she's not worrying about if people aren't smart enough to get her jokes. She's just making her jokes. And I thought, how brilliant and brave of her. And so there's an element of that where where I think with screenplays or, or films, you're trying to pander to an audience the whole time. Whereas with novels, you can afford just to write to please yourself, you know, and, and hope enough people will like it. The problem, though, with screenplays, too, is nobody really knows. Like, people like to believe they know because there's so much on the line, right? And everything is, there's so much money invested in every project. But really, there's something that you can't predict about all of the success, right? So people just sort of double down and like, oh, no, we know this. Like, that's what they say about all these books, too. Like, this type of book won't sell. Well, really? Have you, I mean, that's not true. (laughs) Like. most might not, but that means that the person who's willing to try and experiment and do something new and cool and original will might be dissuaded. So I'm, you know. And the thing, the thing with screenplays is that they're not considered like a finished product in themselves. They're just a means to an end. And so it's kind of sad to write something and work so hard on something that no one's ever going to read and it gets changed at the last minute by somebody else. And so, you know, at, at least with, cause I really did enjoy writing sentences. And so Writing a novel is, you know, at least you know that no one's going to like tear off the page and just throw it out without your permission. Editors try to sometimes, but you know. 
And maybe, I mean, writers on the whole, and not to say that this applies to you necessarily, but I feel like people are pretty sensitive about their words. They like, this is our, you know, it's your pride and joy. You write it. And like, there's a reason why sometimes you do it. And to have somebody be so flippant about rejecting it, that just like can't feel good, no matter how accomplished you are. No, it doesn't. And I'm really glad that I kind of moved away from, I also think I'm better writing books. I definitely get more out of it, I think. So when you're actually doing the writing after you do your sort of spider web and you figure out how you're doing it, does it all just like come pouring out now that you've figured out how to do it? Is it just like a matter of, or do you like labor over each sentence? Sentences come later. You know, so I trained at the American Film Institute as a screenwriter. And I was really lucky enough to have an amazing teacher there who was a Disney writer. And he would always say to us, don't waste time on drafts because drafts take a long, long time. If you're going to write, you know, countless drafts of a novel, it's going to take you forever. So he would say, spend a year working on the outline. And that's what I've always done. And so I'll take my spiderweb and I'll type it up. And then I will keep revising that document for six months to a year, sometimes longer, just going over it and over and over and adding a little bit more and adding a little bit more and sort of trying to find a better way to make a, a point or a beat. And then that document kind of expands and expands. And then it ends up becoming like a very short first draft. And then I will sit down and I will then break it down into chapters and write down, start doing, working on the sentences and the prose. But it's about the story, I think, for me, is the most important thing, as opposed to the pretty language. I think that if you have pretty language without a story, then it it's, doesn't really go very far. So, yeah, but it's a, it's a long it's a long drawn out process. The spiderweb is probably the most fun part of it, because after that, it then becomes this process of trying to realize this moment of inspiration no matter how hard you try you can never quite get it as good as you want it to be and so it's this element of frustration I think that starts creeping in Hmm. so did you really not expect the book to be a success the first one yeah the first one no I mean I didn't at that point so I didn't even have an agent at that point I'd been dropped by my last film agent and so I was just thinking like okay before I really do quit this I've got I had this whispering voice at the back of my head for like 20 years saying write write a detective story write a detective story And I don't know anything about detectives, but I I had trained to be a therapist, although I didn't qualify. And I also worked in a psychiatric unit. And so I do know a bit about therapists. And I thought, oh, well, I could make a a therapist my detective instead. And then I can actually write something that I know about. And then once I had that idea of them clicked, and then I wrote the novel just to see if I could write it. And I worked on it after it was ready for another six months or so, because I just, I, I was so scared about letting it go. It had been such a a pleasurable experience writing this book. And I thought, I just don't, all I'd ever had pretty much as a a screenwriter was rejections. You get so used to it. And I just thought, I just don't want to go through this again, because then I'll really have to give up my dream of being a writer. And it was a friend who finally just was the first person to read it, just said, okay, you have to try and get an agent. You have to send something because it's ready now. And and I did. But even that, I remember it took a couple of drinks before I, I, I wrote to this agent that I found online who ended up becoming my agent because I was so afraid of someone reading it, you know? And then from there, it was just, it was been a dream since then. So. Okay. We can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. 
Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a hundred times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus, or when my husband gets to LA, or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and It makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. So what was it like when you first got an inkling that it was going to do amazingly well? It didn't happen. I didn't have an inkling until it happened. I came out in London the week before it came out in America. And when it came out in London, it didn't, my local bookshop, bookshop, which is like, you know, five meters away, didn't even stock a copy of it. And so I'd have been expecting something, you know, but not, not to even be in a bookstore. I was just like, oh, wow, this is really depressing. <laughs> and then a week later, I was dog sitting and I went out for a walk at like 11 p.m. with the dogs and I left my phone at home because you were marked with how depressed I was feeling. There's no Aww. point, you know. And then I, I got back and it was like my phone that exploded, all these messages from from um, Celadon in New York saying, call us, call us, call us, and messages from my agent saying, call me. And then um, I spoke to Ryan, my editor, and he said, it's gone in at number one on the New York Times list. And I swore at him because I thought he was he was trying to wind me up and I didn't believe it. It was, and so, you know, I was kind of walking on air for the next week, but it, it took a long time. I was in a state of shock, if that makes sense. You know, I just, people kept telling me, oh, you must be really happy. You must be really happy. And I was like, I can't feel anything. And after, it took about a year before I started smiling and feeling like, oh, wow, this is great. This is really, and since then I've really, I've, I've relished it and it's been so much fun, but it was a real adjustment going from zero and having no agent and nothing and feeling like a failure to suddenly this overnight success. But I'd been working towards that success, you know, from the age of 20 to 40. So it was a, it was a long, I'm glad it didn't happen at 20. I don't think I could have handled it then. Wow. Oh my gosh, your story gave me goosebumps. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear that. That's like everyone's dream, you know? It's like, yeah. you know, don't- You don't think it's going to happen. So when it does happen, then you really don't believe it. It just feels like a dream. Yeah, but it's yeah. great. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And now I get to write more books, which is the really- Yeah, tell me what you're working on now. What are you working on now? Now I'm, well, you know what? After I wrote The Maidens, it was a, it was a difficult book to write, not just because it's, I wanted to try and write something different. So, you know, I didn't want to write another small- thing with six characters in a psychiatric unit. I could have done that, but I thought if I want to grow as a writer, I want to write on a bigger canvas, more characters, a more complicated plot, a bigger stories, a darker story. And so I really tried to push myself. And there were times when I was writing it and I was just thinking, wow, am I, really, am I trying to do too much here? This is a bit overwhelming. And plus the, the pressure that I did feel of the second book. So I figured that I would be hugely burnt out at the end of The Maidens and not want to write anything. For whatever reason, it just really freed me up and, and I, I feel kind of buoyant and, and happy and light. And the moment I finished writing it, I started writing something else like pretty much the next day. And so it's something I'm writing differently. I'm trying not to plan it the way I normally do in that crazy obsessive way. 
And I'm just trying to rediscover a joy for writing by just going to the laptop each day and seeing where the story is going to take me. I have no idea if it's going to work or not. But I think it's a marker that I'm feeling very um, relaxed and happy that I'm able to relinquish my control. Because all that comes from fear, you know, doesn't it? When you're trying to control every aspect of the story and plan it obsessively means that underneath it, on some level, you're kind of terrified. And I think having succeeded and written the second novel, I feel quite proud of the accomplishment. And now I feel quite relaxed and thinking, okay, now I'm ready to call myself a writer, not just a fluke, you know, and now I can keep going on with more stuff. And so, yeah, I'm feeling very inspired at the minute. It's a really nice feeling. That's amazing. So no spider web for this one. No, no spider web. No, but the the whole process. Forgot everything you said. Bit, you know, though I have got an idea for a very complicated thriller for, for the next book or, and I don't know what's going to be my next book. And I know I'm going to need to spider web that one and plan it all out. So I think this one is just the kind of, you know, Stephen King always says, once you finish a novel, then try and write something really fast, just for, just for the hell of it. And some of his best stuff, he said, has come out of that space. And that's why I did it. I thought, okay, yeah. that's, that's an interesting idea, you know. So it's like your rebound relationship. Yeah, yes, it is. Hopefully it won't end to, in, a, in a bad way, but let's see. You might end in, the, you know, the police being called. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what advice would you have if somebody was just starting out and maybe even just to tackle all the fear that you talked about? I mean, yeah. I don't know if you've seen, there's this new Disney, I'm sure, I don't know if you have kids, but I there's this yeah. new Disney movie that just came out called Luca. And it, <laughs> one of, I can't believe I'm talking about this, but one of the characters has all this fear, right? And so they come up with this expression that they have to say all the time, which is something like, now, of course, I can't remember that either, but it's like, so something like Silencio Bruno. And every time like they go and do something t- tough, this kid Luca has to say, Silencio Bruno, Silencio Bruno. <laughs> so it's like, how do you do that for the writing, right? How do you stop the fear and let yourself get in that like flow state that you're almost talking about with this next novel? Yeah, that could be me, that character. I mean, my, my first thing I would say is just, is just to keep going and just to persevere, really. I mean, you know, I... I so I, I suffer from anxiety. I always have done. I feel a lot better with it now. But a lot of it, I have a lot of negative critical thoughts that will never go away. I'm aware of that. And so the whole time that I was writing Silent Patient, every day I would hear a voice saying, this is rubbish. Just it's, it's trash. Just forget it. Give up. And sometimes I would just forget the whole thing for two or three months because I was like, this is hopeless. But something kept me going. And so I would, that's my biggest point. I would encourage budding writers just to keep going, keep going, because it worked out for me. And if I'd given up, none of this would have happened. So you have to keep going. That's the most important rule. And the way that I, the way that I deal with the negative voices is I meditate a lot. And so I, I meditated before I wrote any single word every day for the silent patient. And I did the same thing for the maidens. Because when you meditate, somehow it creates a little gap, a little bit of a distance between you and your negative thoughts. And so they still appear when I sit down to write, but instead of being overwhelmed by them, I'm, I'm able to kind of acknowledge them. Oh, okay, here I am thinking this is rubbish again. And then push, push them to one side and at least write for half an hour before the next lot of negative thoughts kind of bombard me. And I think without meditation, I wouldn't be able to do that. But, you know, you are, it's, it's crazy to hear myself talking like this. It makes me realize that we are our own worst enemies, you know? Because I'm so encouraging and supporting of everybody around me and I'm so hard on myself. It's so dumb. If we could be a bit nicer to ourselves and a bit more kind of, you know, supportive, I think life would be easier and not just writing. Yes, I'm sure you're right. (laughs) I completely relate to that. I do the whole like visualization with like the negative thoughts coming as the weather, you know, like. That's great. 
the clouds really are coming good, you know? in and now they're going out and like, okay, here comes the rainstorm. I'm just going to watch the fact that it's raining. I can't really do anything about it, but I'm just going to wait till the rain is over. So yeah. I don't know. That's- and you know that on, on the other side of those clouds, there is a clear blue sky. And right. it's important to remember that, I think. Yeah. You just have to wait till they till they go by. Yeah, they pass. Yeah, and they will pass because nothing lasts forever, which that's is good. the, you know, that's the, it helped me a lot as well. I'm too like, I don't know. I, I can't, I'm too like, uh, I can't meditate. I don't know. I can't like even do it. <laughs> I, I failed. <laughs> I failed okay. meditation. I, no, I, that's a, so that's a I, know I know that means <laughs> I need it more than anybody, but I, I can't even, I can't even get the benefits. I'm like too high strong or something. <laughs> anyway. Awesome. Well, Alex, it was so nice to chat with you and I'm really excited about your book and I can't wait to read everything that you write going forward. And I'm so glad I got to hear from you how you your amazing journey i mean it's really inspiring and amazing and thanks for being so open about your emotions and your life and it's it's really great so thank you that's a pleasure thank you i hope i get to talk to you again maybe for the next one next one come on back anytime got the mic (laughs) all right take care have a great day therapy particularly group therapy was an ironic choice of profession for mariana She had always been ambivalent about groups, even suspicious of them, ever since she was a child. She'd grown up in Greece, on the outskirts of Athens. They'd lived in a large ramshackle old house on top of a hill that was covered with a black and green shroud of olive trees. As a young girl, Mariana would sit on the rusty swing in the garden and ponder the ancient city beneath her, sprawling all the way to the columns of the Parthenon on top of another hill in the distance. It seemed so vast, endless. She felt so small and insignificant, and she viewed it with a superstitious foreboding. Accompanying the housekeeper on shopping trips to the crowded and frenetic market in the centre of Athens always made Mariana nervous, and she was relieved and a little surprised to return home unscathed. Large groups continued to intimidate her as she grew older. At school, she found herself on the sidelines, feeling as if she didn't fit in with her classmates. And this feeling of not fitting in was hard to shake. Years later, in therapy, she came to understand that the schoolyard was simply a macrocosm of the family unit, meaning her uneasiness was less about the here and now, less about the schoolyard itself, or the market in Athens, or any other group in which she might find herself, and more to do with the family in which she grew up, and the lonely house she grew up in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 